Welcome fellow wanderers to The Forest Path, a podcast about the journeys we take to discover our true selves and our creativity and the uncertainty and fears that can accompany us on the way. I'm Julia Mazzola, your inner forest guide. Today's conversation is with Gracie Kim, author of magic-infused books and a dear friend. Gracie and I met when we were studying Chinese together in Taiwan. I was immediately drawn to her generous spirit and her unique outlook. Gracie has been a constant source of inspiration for me, so I was so excited to be able to record this conversation to share. We cover so many topics, ranging from her career as a diplomat and a writer, to reconciling her identities and the stories that inspired her. There is so much here, so let's dive in. Hi, Gracie. I'm so excited to have you here. I know you have such rich life experiences to share with us, and I'm really grateful that you're taking the time to tell us those stories. Thank you so much for having me, Julia. I would love to start because even though we know each other, listeners are going to be new to you. So if you could give an introduction to yourself, that would be wonderful. Gosh, okay, yes, where do I start? So my name is Gracie. I am a Korean Kiwi, or Kowi for short. I currently live in Auckland, New Zealand with my husband and my daughter, and we're actually crashing at my parents' house. And I am the author of a book that's coming out um, in May 2021 with um, Rick Ryden Presents Disney Hyperion. And I used to be, among various things, um, a diplomat for New Zealand. Wonderful. I always love how you went from diplomat to writer. (laughs) um, Natural progression. Yes. But I actually want to go even earlier than that, if that's okay, because I feel getting to this point so much has got you to this point. Did you always know that you wanted to be a diplomat or a writer? So it's really funny about the writer part because I have this draft email that's going to sound really funny um, in my Gmail folder, my personal Gmail folder. It's never been sent, but I've updated it over the years. But the first time I think I wrote in it was when I was still in high high school possibly or maybe my first year of uni and it says in the subject line something like Gracie Kim is dot 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 and then inside the email I have these bullet points of all the things I want to be Mm -hmm. in my life Um, and these things like mother and you know wife and all of these things but I also have jobs so I have diplomat in there and I always knew I wanted to be a diplomat that's as far far back as I can remember, that was something I wanted to do. But I never thought that I wanted to be a writer. Like I actually thought that was something I came to later in life. But I saw in there that I have author. So I guess it was, but I must have forgotten about it for a very long time of my kind of adult working career. And it wasn't until much later that it came back to me. So yeah, I think diplomat for sure um, and writer subliminally. I find it really interesting that you had a diplomat and author on there because in my experience, those are not really the sort of well-known careers, you know, in terms of when people ask you, what are you going to be when you grow up? And it's kind of like, I'll be a doctor, I'll be a lawyer, I'm a ballet dancer even. <laughs> so I'm, I'm really curious, when you were at school, was it early influence that kind of led you to those professions or was it something else that tugged you in that direction? So that's a really, really good question. And it's something that I have a real bugbear about, about the way education works for us. 
you know, you go to school and you learn all these subjects and, you know, you'll get asked the question, like you mentioned, what do you want to be when you grow up? And if we're lucky enough to have a careers guidance counsellor or that type of personality at the school, then you get a little bit of a head start. But still, you're told that roles are limited to ones that have titles, you know, clear titles, like you say, doctor, accountant, the dancer even, but these specific titles. Whereas I feel like having now worked in the professional world that most jobs don't have clear titles and I don't really know how we go about that actually I feel like that's a problem with the education system in general globally about how we allow our kids through the education system to know what kind of jobs and opportunities are out there for our career but anyway that's a side point. I think author was clear just because I was such a bookworm And that, I think, came from a time where I didn't even know what professions were or careers were. I just loved books. And so the idea that one could pen their own story and have other people share in their mind and in their imaginations, I think that was just mind-boggling to me. Um, And actually, specifically, I remember this one book that I read when I was in Intermediate. So I must have been about 11. um, And it was called The Day After Forever. And it was written by an author called Erin Skiffington. And she was 14. And I remember at the time loving the book, like absolutely beautiful book um, about four friends who go on a camping trip together, but one has a terminal illness. And it's about their coming to grips with life and death and stuff like that. Beautifully written. And I remember being like a 14-year-old girl wrote this story. And I think that specifically inspired me that if somebody so close to my age could write a book, then maybe I could one day as well. So I think that was a specific kind of impetus for me to realize that was a profession. Mm -hmm. But for diplomacy, it's really interesting. I don't actually know. And I suspect it was my parents. And part of that was about my identity as a Korean Kiwi, because having grown up in New Zealand at a time where, you know, there really just weren't many Koreans in our nation neighborhood or our school um, until a few years into my schooling and so I think my parents always said if you can do something that represents both your identities that would be a really powerful to live your life and I I mean I, I, I do believe that it was them probably that planted the seed because I felt that with diplomacy I'm representing New Zealand right the country that gave me my education and my life and my society And so that was representing one huge part of my identity. But because of the way I look, every time people ask, you know, who are you? I can always say, like I did in my intro today, I'm a Korean Kiwi, which allows me to represent the country that gave me um, my culture and and my my family. And so I think I always in my mind thought that it it was one of those roles where, yeah, a job where I could represent both my identities while also seeing the world. But It's interesting that you ask about the origin point. I don't know. It was always there. And you're right. It's not one of those jobs that people think of at school. But, um, yeah, it was always there from the very beginning. I really love what you say about being able to blend your two identities with diplomacy. It's something that I think is really powerful because a lot of the time identities are things that we struggle with anyway. And... Did you feel that you actually had a lot of uncertainty growing up trying to blend into the world with both of those identities? 100%. Most kids have run-ins and difficulties with their parents, but I actually think the main reason that I had difficulties with my parents growing up was that. And I think that was my problem, like me internally, I had such difficulty balancing my two identities and finding a path that could that could do justice and love both 
of who I was. I rejected a lot of what my parents were teaching me, even though in the end I I realize now, looking back, it's what makes me a richer person and it makes me more than the whole and that I don't have to be half this or part this, that I am both and all. But yeah, uncertainty-wise, it was a huge part of growing up. And, you know, at the time, I think this is high school now, I was looking back on a photo where I had dyed my hair super light. I mean, not bleach, but pretty orangey brass type situation. And I was wearing blue contact lenses and I was super tanned from the sun and I remember at the time I thought I was so cool and there is nothing against people obviously that want lighter color hair or blue colored contact lenses absolutely that's that's totally cool but I think for me personally it was my way of trying to escape my Korean identity and I find that really sad that I had to cover myself up and change the color of my eyes to feel like I was more accepted in the country that is my home. And at the same time, visiting Korea to see um, to see relatives and family and feeling like I was an outsider there as well, always feeling like I never truly belonged anywhere. So uncertainty for sure growing up. But at the same time, I feel like it's that struggle to find balance and to find certainty that actually makes me more balanced now, you know, knowing what it feels like to feel out of place and now feeling a lot more secure in who I am and knowing that identity is always fluid that makes me yeah appreciate what I have now more and I actually think it helps me write Mm. well I was I was going to ask the part of the do you think part of the process of coming more to terms and with your dual identities or as you say identity is fluid so multiple identities do you think working as a diplomat and actually writing have played a part in that? Almost think it's not so much my professions that have helped me blend them over time and come to to love and accept my multiple identities. I actually think those are almost the culmination of the journeys that I've been on. And I think the things that happened in my life that actually helped me realise that I should love all parts of who I am were actually not job related. I think they were more friend related, experience related, travel related, love related. I think it was more those things. And then, yeah, the jobs almost were a representation or yeah, like a symbolic illustration of where I've got to. For writing, for sure, because I don't realize it so much until in one of my revision processes with the book that's coming out next year, realizing that the whole story was basically about a girl stuck between two worlds, Mm. um, figuring out who she is and how she belongs. And I don't think I, I mean, that was a theme as I was writing it, but I didn't realize the entire story was about that. So I think I'm almost doing self-therapy by writing it out. but I don't think that was what made me realise it, come to grips with my identity in the first place. And in terms of, because this this book that you have coming out in 2021, this, as you say, it's kind of a relatively new career for you. Mm-hmm. How did you even start getting into the process of writing again after spending so long away from your teenage self thinking they were going to be an author? So I was thinking about this last night um, in preparation for our chat, and I don't think I can pinpoint an exact time at all, but what I can pinpoint is one specific thing 
So when I finished up my uh, posting in Beijing and China, and when I was getting ready to come back to New Zealand, that pinpoint of time, I think, wasn't what made me want to write, but it made me look at my life in a way that I hadn't looked at before. So up until then, um, in diplomacy, basically, well, in New Zealand diplomacy, you do an assignment onshore domestically in Wellington usually and then you get sent overseas to a posting to one of our embassies or consulates around the world and then you go back and forth so some years out some years in some years out some years in and up until that my focus had been going out on posting and then at the end of my time in Beijing I had finished my first overseas proper assignment and I had to come back home so there was this kind of natural progression point where I had to think is this what I want for my life? Do I want more? What do I want? And how do I go about it? So I almost was forced into thinking about my life, asking myself what I truly want. And I think at that point is when I rediscovered my love for books and my desire to become a writer. But in terms of how it came about, gosh, there's so many things that happened. And I want to say that probably first started or my first key moment where I started to think about what else did I want for my career was in Taiwan. So after working in, in New Zealand for some years, my first posting was actually to Taiwan for two years where I was um, learning the language. So I was on full-time language training over there. And one day I remember crossing the road on a Saturday night and witnessing this horrific traffic accident where a huge concrete truck had a run over a, a mother and her 12-year-old daughter who were walking right behind me. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I remember the, the movement of the concrete truck passing me by so much that my hair flapped in the, in the movement in the wind and then hearing them fall. And it was just this horrific, horrific incident. And I ended up holding this mother's hand as she, as she passed away. And it was mine. I mean, I've never had anyone die in front of my eyes before. And I think it was such a challenging experience emotionally and, you know, coming to grips with that age old thing, you know, what is dying and then what is life and how do you live one's life so that when you do die, you've lived a life worth living. All these, you know, big questions. And I think that was the first time I turned around, looked back on my life and asked, am I on the right path so that when I'm on my deathbed, not to get morbid, but when I'm at that moment to leave this world Will I look back on my life and think that I lived it well and live it, lived it to my fullest and that I would not leave having regrets? And that was the first time I had that question mark. Like, I'm not sure, but I didn't act on it. It was just what it was for the time. And then the second time I think I had that moment again was when I was in Beijing. So I spent three years in Beijing after Taiwan working at the, at the New Zealand embassy there. And I had this moment there where one day I just couldn't see properly things were blurry and I remember going in for an eye check and the ophthalmologist checked my eyes and she sat back and she basically said long story short if you don't go get emergency surgery now you will be blind within the next 24 to 72 uh -huh. hours or something like that <laughs> um, and that again I mean I've recovered really well I'm only partially blind in one eye now and it doesn't affect my daily life but that again gave me another impetus to, to look back on my life and think, am I living the way that I want to be living? This is one life. I get one pair of eyes, um, one heart. Is this the way I want to live my life? I had another question mark there, but again, I didn't act on it. Mm -hmm. Not on, not for writing anyway. Um, I think I acted on it in other ways, but I um, 
didn't for writing. And then I think the culminating thing for me, the third big thing that happened in my life was when my Nana passed away, which was also when I was in Beijing. And my Nana raised us three girls. I have two sisters. And I think that really jolted me mm-hmm. to have someone so close to me pass away. And that's when I think I started to think, okay, no more question marks. What can I do now to change my life so that I will not have any regrets? And that was the moment I believe that I started writing, proper writing. I mean, those are such important, valuable questions to ask oneself on a regular basis. And I do, I think it's really interesting that there are kind of these inciting incidents within your own story that took you closer and closer to where you are now. And I remember at the time, I'm not sure actually if these are still available online, but for each of those specific incidents, you wrote a blog post. I did, yeah. Um, I think they've gone, actually. My blog died. (laughs) It just disappeared one day, and I don't know. Yeah, they're gone. That's such a shame, because I remember that writing being so powerful and so impactful. And they're very personal. They were very personal pieces. And to me, kind of expressed that you used writing as a way to process those things as well. Would that be true? Or do you feel that, again, the writing was a culmination of having already processed Oh, no, you're absolutely right. And it's only until I think afterwards looking back that I realized that. But at the time, yes, I I do actively remember after having written these things, feeling a lot clearer in my in my mind and in my heart about what had happened, that I'd almost used the process of writing to, yeah, like I said before, self-therapize and that the process of writing it organized my emotions and thoughts that were turbulent into kind of more organized categories and that sounds weird but it's like you know you something happens to you and you have all these feelings and thoughts and they just storm around in your body and you don't know how to harness it like you don't know what to do with it you can't release it it won't go away so you have to somehow reformulate this energy into something new something that you can live with because I don't think that energy that you get that that turbulent energy goes away ever for good. And so, yeah, I think for me, writing was a way to harness it, almost like, almost like you know, when superheroes and movies get mm. like new gifts and they, they go wild and they're like, I don't know what to do with this. Um, and then there's usually some kind of mentor or guide that helps them to harness it and then channel it in the way that they want to. It's almost like that. Like I almost felt like writing did that. But funnily enough, Yeah, yeah, like it was my superpower, but I didn't know how to do it until I had done it, and I didn't realize that that's what it was until much later looking back. Mm. And it's also, so you, these were very personal blog posts, but you, you decided to go down the creative writing route instead. Uh, What was it about creative writing that drew you over, say, a nonfiction I guess I felt like I didn't have interesting enough stories in my real life that anybody would want to read them. <laughs> I figured if anybody was going to take time out of their busy existences to read something that I had penned, that then it better be interesting um, and therefore not be about my real life. <laughs> I love that. Even though <laughs> you have just shared three unbelievably fascinating stories. <laughs> I wouldn't lie. <laughs> But, but no, I, I, I can understand. <laughs> and did you when, you, when you started writing your stories initially, did you have any issue claiming the title of writer or author? Oh, 
gosh, yes. I mean, author, I still I still find it very hard to use that word, but I feel like if my book is coming out, then I can maybe say have to get used to it (laughs) um but even writer oh gosh I mean it's funny because if anybody else came to me and said hey I'm struggling with imposter syndrome I don't think I can call myself a writer I would probably say to them do you write do you put words down on paper and if they said yes I would say then you are a writer simple as that but for some reason when it's your own writing and it's your own imposing imposter syndrome uh it doesn't seem that simple so yeah I struggled a lot I still struggle a lot I don't know I feel like the the best of us suffer from imposter syndrome and that's because we are true to ourselves and we don't want to let ourselves be anything we don't truly believe we are I think it's actually a good trait Mm -hmm. so yeah we just have to work at accepting it I guess and loving ourselves and letting ourselves be who we know we are And I think you make a really good point there about it. Part of kind of imposter syndrome is being true to yourself. And I think a lot of that comes with recognizing it. It can still exist. You can still be an author and have imposter syndrome. You can still be a creator and have imposter syndrome. The fact that imposter syndrome is there does not invalidate the other thing that you are doing. And so I think one of the most important things is just to be able to create a little bit of distance with it. So like exactly like you said, being able to say, look, if someone else came to me with these feelings, I would be able to tell them you are a writer, but I can't do it for myself. I think that's a step in the direction of slowly accepting that you are an author. And yeah, yeah, and it just goes to show how often we discredit our own work and put so much more value on other people's work and believe that they are not having the same thoughts of doubt as well. Yeah, I don't know why that happens. And, you know, I, I always thought everybody felt this way, but I'm starting to realise it's not. It's, it's not everyone who feels this type of imposter syndrome. Some people just own their stuff. You know, like they just put it on their forehead and face the world and say, I've been writing for two days, but I am a writer and they're super proud and open about it. And I mean, I don't know. I don't know what separates us and, and those types of people. But I, I don't know. One, one other way I like to think of it is that feeling of not being there enough, right? Like not mm. quite being writer enough or not quite being author or creative enough to me almost gives me more motivation to work harder because I think, okay, well, if I don't feel like I can truly openly, proudly call myself a creative, then I obviously need to work harder so I can earn that badge. And that is kind of exciting too, because that kind of lights a fire up my my butt to work <laughs> harder and <laughs> and to create more and to explore more and play more. So in yeah. a way, if it avoids complacency, then I can't say it's a bad thing entirely I think as long as it comes with a healthy dose of gentleness and kindness towards yourself Mm. because I do agree it is it can be a really good motivator but there has to be a limit because otherwise everything could not be enough you know it's there's no there's no goalpost where you where you are magically going to feel better and you're going to feel like now is my time to be able to claim it it all comes from within so I guess what I'm trying to say is that the motivation of wanting to do better work 
is definitely extremely honourable. And But if it's purely from an external validation side of things, then I do worry that it creates too much doubt within the process that starts to hinder rather than being helpful. I think you're right. There's so much love involved in accepting ourselves, right? Um, but that's so hard to do. I don't, I don't understand why it's so difficult to let ourselves be loved when quite often, I believe, we are the ones that are so generous with our own love to others. <laughs> I find it really odd that um, yeah. the simplest thing for us, the most natural thing that comes to us, um, is often the thing we find hardest to provide ourselves. And there's so much, I mean, there are so many layers to that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I think the crucial aspect of that is that we are dual beings. We have so many multiple layers within us. And you can work towards being more loving of yourself while working with imposter syndrome, while also believing that it is difficult to love oneself. I think I think accepting that all of those realities can exist is a really crucial aspect of growth, essentially. I totally agree. And that's what we were talking about before about multiple identities and fluid identities. Because, Mm. yeah, just like you say, we don't have to be one thing. Just because we have imposter syndrome doesn't mean we can't also proudly accept that we are a creative or we are xyz we can be all of those things at the same time and still be one person (laughs) and not have multiple clones so going a little bit more on kind of uh, your writing process then as imposter syndrome aside can you tell me a little bit about the creation process of your story Mm. yeah so this was not the first manuscript that i wrote when i left Beijing, came back to New Zealand and decided to give writing a real go. I wrote another one, which was terrible, (laughs) and is going to say, (laughs) stay locked up in my e-files forever, never to see the light of day ever again. So a few different things happened. I think, I I don't know, when I hear interviews and I hear people say, this is the moment that this thing happened, I'm always so in awe of them because I don't think in my life I can attribute any one decision to one insight. (laughs) I think quite often lots of lots of things lots of moments that culminate into one thing but anyway on that one of the culminating um, inciting incidents for me was I read a book by Zoraida Cordova um, called Labyrinth Lost and it was about Latinx witches mm-hmm. and I love anything to do with witches I love anything supernatural and then to have witches that were Latinx <laughs> identifying mm-hmm. I was like wow I didn't realize that was a thing Um, and that got me so excited, and that made me want to write a Korean witch story, or specifically a Korean X witch story, and this is, it it really isn't a term, but I've just been saying Korean X for Korean diaspora communities, because I feel like Korean diaspora communities are quite different from, say, you know, Korean communities who've been born and raised and continue to live in Korea. I feel like they're very different identities. So that got me really excited about the concept of witches, but Korean, um, and then in terms of the creative element of how the Korean witch's core, the heart, came about, was a story that my dad told me uh, when I was little about the creation story of Koreans. So Koreans believe that there was a bear and a tiger, and both of them wished desperately to become human. So they prayed to their god and said, please, god, turn us into a human. And so the god gave them an assignment. Um, they said, all right, go into this cave where there is no sunlight. 
and gave them a bundle of mugwort leaves and um, a handful of garlic cloves and said, go into this cave. If you can withstand the hunger and the darkness for 100 days, then I will heed your wish and turn you into humans. So the story goes that the bear and the tiger went into this cave and 20 days passed and the tiger gave up. The tiger was like, whoa, dude, this is way too hard. I'm way too hungry and it's way too cold in here. I'm out. And so he leaves and then um, the bear stays and the bear is so dutiful and so patient that the god on the 21st day turns the bear into a beautiful female woman and she became the first Korean. And I always love the story okay. for, I don't know why, it just sounded so cool, the fact that um, <laughs> Koreans came from bears um, and also the fact that we survived off garlic because basically Korean food is all garlic. So <laughs> I've always loved the story. And so that gave me the creative root, I guess, to plant my story. And, um, and the thought process went, if this bear and this tiger continue to live on, then, you know, a thousand years from then on in today's society, who would their descendants be? What if they were witches? What if they lived in the US? Um, and it kind of went from there to snowballed into a, a story from there. Oh, I cannot wait to read it. I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> it's weird, but, um, but we're friends, so you might like it. I don't know. I think I'll love it. Do not put yourself down there. Your writing is beautiful and emotive and and I have always loved your sense of wonder about everything and I can just tell that it's going to permeate this tale so I it's going to be such a treat how when you come across writing issues issues when you're writing what do you normally do to handle them um most of the time I pull my hair I go (laughs) eat stuff I go have a shower I put a pillow over my head and try to sleep um, to be honest, most of the time I just struggle internally and it's mm-hmm. only when my my dear beloved hubby says, um, are you okay? Do you want to talk about it? And I say, no, I don't. I just need to figure it out in my head. And he says, are you sure you want to talk about it just a little bit? And then I end up opening up and within, I don't know, 15 minutes of discussing something, I sort through the you know block I had or this is for usually for plot points and things like that when I'm in the brainstorming stage. Uh, and it's funny because I don't think it's, I mean, as much as I love my husband, I don't think it's necessarily him <laughs> that that gives me all the ideas that unblocks the blocks that I have, but it's more the process of opening up and talking about it. Because mm-hmm. often when you're talking about it, you give yourself the answers that you were looking for. And having to articulate it to someone else usually yeah. clears it up in your mind. Yes. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Having to verbalize it somehow unties some of the complicated knots that were in your head and in the process you figure it out. So that usually helps in the brainstorming phase. Mm -hmm. But when I'm writing, I have an issue with the term writer's block because I think it exists and I think it doesn't exist at the same time. I think it is creative pursuits definitely have a different flow to say a desk office job in which some days no matter how hard you try no matter how well prepared you are sometimes it's just that much harder and you feel like you can't push through I think that is true that definitely Mm -hmm. exists but I also think if you're serious about your creative pursuits you have to treat it like a job um, not just a hobby just a real job 
And mm-hmm. if it is a real job, you need to turn up and you need to do the work. And that might not be every day, right? Like I don't necessarily think it has to be this religious thing where you turn up at your desk every morning at the same hour and stay there for however long that you've got mm-hmm. for your working day, regardless of what you're producing. But I do think you have to give yourself the opportunity to work. So often if I'm having a difficult day, I turn up anyway, even mm-hmm. if it's for a short amount of time, I turn up, I put in the effort. And if it doesn't work, I walk away and just remember that tomorrow is another day. You um, posted on social media recently. I can't remember what channel it was, but you had a little calendar up where you had a sticker for when you wrote stuff, stuff and uh, a little sprout for when you were brainstorming and then you had family time as well. I really loved this calendar because I love how you allowed time for the thinking process as well as putting in time for the personal. I completely agree with you in that when you have a creative job, you still do have to treat it somewhat like a job. But I think many people would not categorize potentially brainstorming or even family time as part of that. When I personally believe that even the downtime, if it's intentional downtime, is entirely part of the process exactly like you were saying kind of 15 minutes chatting with your husband all the time where you need to put your head under a pillow (laughs) (laughs) I think that's part I think that's part of it I feel like we are taught that unless you're moving forward unless you're in the doing phase unless you're in action it doesn't count when in reality there is just like you said before there's never one exact moment it is multiple moments that end up together to kind of create a waterfall effect. So you, I know you prioritize family time as well, but is there something else that you prioritize to kind of help you with creative endeavors? Like you say, the chart has been a real game changer for me because I'm a visual person and I'm also a very goal-oriented person. If I don't know where I'm headed, I lose all motivation, I lose all hope, and I lose complete interest. (laughs) So the, the visual chart has really helped me. And so like you say, I make sure to put family time because that distance, I think, especially for creative pursuits, but for all jobs, I think distance is so important mm-hmm. as long as it's purposeful and it's it's active. I don't know how else to describe that, but mm-hmm. it's not just giving up and, and being in denial and walking away. It's saying I will purposely, actively create this time to mm-hmm. have time away. And I think that makes a difference in your brain. It puts it in a different category. It doesn't put it in the running away, hiding category. It puts it in the moving forward category. Mm-hmm. And I have, yeah, I have my blue lightning bolt for brainstorming. Then I have a green sprout for any work that I do. Even if it's five words, even if it's one mm-hmm. sentence, I still give myself a green sprout because that's still something, still growth. And then, yeah, I have my little owl stickers for when I finish a chapter. And yeah, it's it's basically exactly what you said, allowing yourself to appreciate that the creative process, the working process includes not just the doing of words produced, but the thinking involved, the looking outside the window into nothing and just (laughs) thinking, getting lost in your imagination, having time away so that the thoughts and and ideas in your brain can percolate up. Um, Mm -hmm. All that stuff is, is part of the process. And I don't think the production of words is any more important than the other stuff. It's actually why I find things like NaNoWriMo, which is the National Novel Writing Month of November, quite 
challenging and difficult and somewhat misleading for certain types of writers. Mm -hmm. If you are that way inclined where you write by the seat of your pants, if you're a pantser, (laughs) i.e. you don't plot, you just sit there and you just produce words and the process of writing leads you to discover new worlds and plot lines and characters and stories, then awesome. I am so jealous. Um, (laughs) And you can produce whatever is 40,000 words in a month. I can't remember. Anyway, the, the very large amount of words in a month, and that is incredible. But I think it also detracts from what we were talking about before, the thinking, the brainstorming, the planning that some of us love to do in order to get a story down. I think it's all in your own speed. And as long as you have a system so that your brain knows that these steps are part of the movement forward, then I think that's all you need. You just need to tell your brain what your system is because everybody's system is different. Um, and as long as you're on board with the system, then I think you can overcome a lot of the writer's block. I've got air quotes, problems that we face. And so you mentioned that you you say that you're a goal-orientated person. Uh, I'm curious of how that works in relationship to kind of a mindset around clarity. When you say goal, does it have to be super specific or... Do you sometimes leave it open to be quite nebulous as well? I find I have to be quite specific, even though, to be honest, most of the time I don't achieve my goals. Mm -hmm. But it's knowing the direction in which I'm going and the more specific, the more tangible it seems, that in itself is what helps me. And it's funny, you know, now that I write stories, it's funny how much of life can be explained through writing craft. Okay, so in stories, when you're creating a character and you're creating their backstory, right, because everybody has the baggage that they come to a scene with, which Mm -hmm. then impacts the way that they react in the scene to different things that happen. And a lot of writing craft books will tell you the more specific their backstories are, the more universal they become. So instead of just saying character A had a really troubled childhood, Mm -hmm. that's a very universal thing um, that you think would relate more to people. But actually by saying something very specific, they had a troubled childhood because this happened to them when they were three years old that impacted the way that they saw the world, which then impacted the way that they reacted when this happened at five years old. When you get into the minute detail, for some reason it becomes a lot more universal. And that's kind of the way I feel like with goal setting too. Even though I perhaps in the back of my head know that I may not achieve them because they are so specific, Having that specific goal makes me feel more aligned and more connected, I guess. Yeah, I really like that. And, and especially when you're talking about kind of writer craft, I have found personally in my own writing endeavors how much of it is psychology, how much mm-hmm. is taking the time to just listen to why someone might be doing something. And I have learned the most through paying attention about what other people are doing in terms of how to write. <laughs> My characters all come from watching watching the real world unfold, essentially. Absolutely. And you know, the other thing about stories, right, is that a story is only as good as the conflict that the main character faces and the challenges mm-hmm. that they have to overcome. And I feel like that's kind of life as well. If we didn't struggle with the writing process, if we didn't struggle with our creative process, then what we create at the other end probably won't be very exciting either. It's because we have those challenges that we are able to explore the ups and downs and the, the predicaments and the dilemmas. And that's what makes a story rich. That's not what makes it universal. That's what makes it emotional. And that's what makes the 
the final payoff so earned and so satisfying. Oh, I completely agree and so beautifully put. So this is a question that I'm going to be asking at the end of every session as well, but I, what advice would you have for those that are currently feeling lost in their own situation on their own forest path of whatever creative endeavor they're doing? I think one, I would say, take your time. There's no hurry to get to the end of the forest. I mean, I feel like so much of the beauty of being lost is being able to enjoy the process of being lost. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that's the last thing. I mean, I know I hate being <laughs> lost. <laughs> I despise that feeling of not knowing where I'm headed. So I get that it's much easier said than done. But to just enjoy what that process gives you. And if any point you're on that path and you see something, a spark, a flower, something swaying in the breeze that takes your interest to grab it. I think that would be my biggest thing because it's in that process of exploration that you find true discovery. You just have to grab it because it's those little clues, they are trails um, that will lead you to the path um, to find the way out. I truly believe that. If you just wait, sit there and wait for someone to come save you out of the forest, not only will it be boring, um, you'll never actually (laughs) find the thing that you don't know that you're looking for. So yeah, I would say explore and play. Like, Don't think about it as something you have to do, but something you can let yourself enjoy to indulge in. I think for me, before I got to writing, I knew for a long time that diplomacy might not be the right path. But I did not find writing until I went through so many different variations of what I now see were me exploring the creative path. So I did things like an online cooking show. <laughs> I... Um, you know, created a business that turned children's drawings into soft toys. I created a business with a friend that created interactive children's books on the iPad. And all these really random things out of left field that had nothing to do with diplomacy. I didn't know how they fit in with anything, actually, to be honest. But I just knew that it interested me at the time. I had to pursue it. I had to give it a go because I couldn't not, because it was shiny, it was interesting. And it was through all these trials and weird you know missteps and experiences that I eventually found writing and I feel so content in writing and I think I know that because when I wake up in the morning no matter how hard writing gets and sometimes I hate it because it is so difficult I still love it I still know that I'm on the right path even though so many days are hard Um, and that's how I know I'm in the right path because it's the entire journey that I'm enjoying and I couldn't say the same about things I've done in the past it was quite clear in some of the jobs I did that discomfort I felt in the jobs the feeling like I was in clothes that didn't quite fit me that feeling was greater than the feeling of of acceptance and love so yeah look for that feeling yeah I think that's um that's so true the discomfort is there to teach you and being lost in the forest I don't think it's something that anybody enjoys <laughs> and it comes back to what we were saying before you can do both you can accept that you don't like being lost and still realize that you're learning how to find your spark yeah. well thank you so much Gracie I could talk forever with you as you know um, <laughs> I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us and I know that people are going to love this conversation and 
thank you so much to you, Julia, for letting me come here and to to share in this experience with you. I'm so excited um, about your podcast and I feel so honoured to have been invited. If you'd like to hear more from Gracie, you can check out her website, graciekim.com, or follow her on Twitter and Instagram. Remember to sign up to her newsletter to find out when you can pre-order her book. Thank you so much for listening, fellow wanderers. Until next time.